0: Hello and welcome to Mirrorly. I'm Kate Gray Johnson
1: and I'm Brie Keim and this is a podcast where we talk about body image using our own personal stories to reflect on the lies that we believe about ourselves, our bodies, and each other.
0: Hey, welcome back to Mirrorly. Thanks for joining us. Second episode. Gonna dig a little deeper. Um, If you were here for the first episode, we talked about just being kids and how we processed who we were and our place in the world. And we had a couple revelations about moments that really impacted us. Brie and I are going to get really specific about our stories, but our stories aren't all encompassing. We think there's some value in sharing specificity of our own personal experiences, but if your experiences differ, they're equally as valid. You don't have to have seen things the way we did or feel the way we did to have a valid experience and have a really real struggle with your body image and food and all of the above. I do just want to sh- throw out the disclaimer today that in some of the specifics, particularly of what I'm going to say, numbers come up. They're in no way meant to represent what is healthy or unhealthy. These are just numbers that I remember from my experiences. And if, if those kinds of things are triggering to you, I just want to let you know that ahead of time that Uh, a couple specific numbers from my weight and weight loss experience outside of the context of being bulimic do come up. And I just want to give everyone kind of a a warning about that.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So today we're going to get a little closer to the edge of the event that was being bulimic for me.
1: And being anorexic for me.
0: And we're just going to explore how we picked up momentum (laughs) that
1: led to that place when we just jumped off the cliff because we teetered on the edge for a while
0: yeah so we're going to examine the space a little closer to that edge right up into it yeah here we go let's get started so last time we talked a little bit about just how we saw the world as kids Mm -hmm. and kind of maybe some of the lies that were floating around us that we grabbed onto and I found the conversation I what I found most interesting about the conversation was that at least reflecting on my own experience is that I think the lies that I believed as a kid that affected me most in the future weren't actually about my body (laughs) or how I looked they really were a little more about how I thought of myself as a
1: person. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. I think that we definitely kind of uncovered something in discussing that a majority of the lies that we were believing stemmed from internal rather than external.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's also interesting to just recount that A lot of the things we were taking in weren't fully formed at that point. And so that's what we're going to be focusing a little more in this podcast. Um, So we both eventually got to the point where the way we saw ourselves (laughs) resulted in pretty classic eating disorders. And so today we're just going to be getting a little closer to the edge of those moments in our life. And what did that edge start to look like? And what things were we really internalizing and making regular practices that probably snowballed into that point? Is that kind of accurate?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Where do you want to start?
1: Yeah. Well, when I was reflecting on what we were going to be talking about today, I looked down at like the notes. All of a sudden, had this moment where. One of the one of the things that was there was what happened when you hit puberty, and how did that? And I I was like, uh, I don't want to remember that time. (laughs) There, like, there's a book. I think I think it's by James Patterson. Maybe don't quote me on that, but. We're literally
0: quoting you. (laughs) We are recording exactly what you say.
1: (laughs) Quote me on this. This is accurate information. James Patterson wrote a book and it is called Middle School, The Worst Years of My Life. I don't know if that's true or not, but there's a book (laughs) out there that I think James Patterson wrote that's something along those lines. And I don't think that that's wrong (laughs) for most people.
0: Yeah. I, I mean puberty is weird for everybody i i remember that time being weird but not because my body was changing like I don't,
1: why was it weird then
0: I. Uh, i think like that's the first time you start feeling like oh i'll be an adult eventually mm.
1: yeah because your body's changing
0: i guess so i guess so i, I you know i wasn't like i didn't like Sprout boobs the same way some girls did, mm-hmm. and I got my period late, and so yeah, it just feels more spread out. Yeah, that makes and sense. And middle school was the first time I had friends at school, so that wasn't a negative thing, sure. Yeah, but yeah, I guess the big thing about puberty is that you become more aware of your body, mm-hmm. and that's um, I don't know, is there anybody out there that like enjoys that?
1: I've never met someone. Yeah. Please let us know if you enjoyed puberty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So take um, us
0: take us back to puberty, Brie. Oh, okay. So I'm gonna go first. Yeah, you are. Um
1: Uh okay. Well, okay, so I was thinking about this and I can't pinpoint a time where I'm like, this is when I started puberty for sure. Mm. I do remember starting middle school. I think this is unrelated, but maybe it's not.
0: Let's go down that passageway. Let's, okay. Let's
1: figure it out. We're not going to do a therapy session, but I just am saying that we, I went <laughs> I went from being homeschooled in sixth grade to being in public school in seventh grade. Mm. And
0: that wasn't your first time being in public school, though.
1: No, 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 yeah. no. It was an interesting transition. I was suddenly with a bunch of people all the time that weren't in my little bubble of people. Mm, you okay, know yeah um, and I think that definitely brought to more just under the surface what I believed about myself, even though I couldn't conceptualize that. What I do remember about being in middle school was that. And at the time, I thought, really, not much of this. I didn't think of it as, oh, this is because I don't like myself or I'm uncomfortable with who I am. But I remember that I often pretended in an almost absurd way to be somebody else hmm. because I was more comfortable if I imagined that I was somebody different. and. The absurdity of it, aside from that in of itself, was that I was, I pretended I was like a secret agent spy, you know? Um, So I wanted to be this really intelligent, cool, savvy, secret agent person. And I would imagine this often, especially while I was at school, that I would have to act like quote unquote normal in front of all these people because I had this really incredible secret life on the side that no one could ever know about. Yeah. And in reflecting on that, I think there was this bit of self-protection that I could believe if I pretended this, that I was a genuinely really cool, interesting person where if other people didn't think that of me i could pretend that that was all part of the plan you know which is actually yeah, something that yeah. we kind of touched on last time is that wanting to guard yourself against rejection
0: there's something interesting about that but uh, that i think we both did like where uh you detach your internal self from your external self.
1: We it sounds like we both started doing that fairly oh, early. Please tell me about your experience.
0: Well, a little bit like I was telling you before with the car and the music, mm-hmm. and just putting something else out there. But I definitely did that a similar thing as a kid and in middle school, and just I'd take the games that I played with my friends at home outside of the school setting. And I wouldn't necessarily bring them to school with me in the way that you were pretending to be a secret agent, but I would daydream about those spaces. Mm -hmm. I'd write stories in my head and I'd just go live in that world Mm -hmm. in between so that I didn't have to spend as much time in my (laughs) present world. And it was very much uh, creating characters or little side paracosms for me to live in. And I think there's just, there's something about not having to be too present that detaches you from that. But even, even so, if you can set up, if you can set yourself up to be like, whatever people are seeing uh, as their first impression is different. And, and to an extent, this is true, right? Your first impression might not, it isn't all of you. But sometimes, I think, especially when you're a kid, even if you're self-aware, it feels like that must be all of you. Mm -hmm. So you're still kind of figuring out who you are. And so everything that people reflect back to you, whether it's supposed to be or not, becomes really internalized. So we're setting... we're, Yeah, it sounds like we're both in process as kids, separating those two things. Yeah. Because as a kid, you don't really have the tools... To know that uh, all that stuff will develop and even that, you know when you're a kid and the adults tell you that things won't really matter that much when you get older? Like certain things? Mm-hmm. Even if you're a very intelligent child or a very self-aware child you don't necessarily understand what that will actually look like or mean. Right. So you have fairly primitive tools to set up your own understanding of yourself and how to like project that to
1: the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also a part in hitting that stage of puberty when you are kind of in the in-between of, of being a kid and being an adult, where at least for me, I don't know if this is for everyone, but there's this kind of pressure to be interesting and I don't know if you had a similar experience or not, but middle school was the first time that I really came up close and personal with friends who were struggling with depression. And and there was a big, when I was in middle school, there was, a, I don't know what they called it, emo or mm. that kind of Style was emo and seeing kids that was my high school years. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And (laughs) (laughs) but you start to deal with those, like, those real serious things in life where whether it's a trend that people are jumping on or a real mental issue, you that all gets kind of blurred together. I think that develops into more major identity issues.
0: Going back to what you were saying about being interesting, mm-hmm. I think I definitely during that time felt that to be sad and to be depressed was was interesting. It made you more interesting to yeah. have a tragic backstory.
1: Yeah, exactly. Even if you don't, experience that sort of textbook trauma or what you would expect to cause deep emotions your emotions of being sad and and depressed and confused are totally still genuine it uh, honestly in some way
0: Kind of, I think there's also another side to it where unless you have some really textbook, dark past or sad thing happening to you, you have to create something that validates those emotions.
1: Yes, that's a very good way.
0: I can't just be sad. I don't know. I guess I I thought some of the things that actually were difficult in my life, but weren't, um weren't going to be turned into a movie or anything, yeah, they weren't good enough to make me that sad or that feel that lonely or feel that alienated. I needed better reasons, or I wasn't allowed to feel that way,
1: yeah, it's almost like you feel that because you have emotions. Maybe this is it because when you hit that age and you start to really feel things deeper and, and process things a little bit more. When you don't have a long list of trauma and tragedy in the classic sense, you almost feel like a fraud. Mm. And it's so interesting that you use the wording, you don't feel like what you're situation or circumstances are are good enough to qualify you for that because isn't that this whole thing of relating to yourself and and your body and all of that stuff it's you just don't feel good enough and so you have to kind of fabricate or come up with a valid enough reason
0: what's interesting is when you're a kid and things are just being thrown in the pot and stewing, you don't really know. Uh, the world is still taking shape around you, and I think that middle school age, that preteen to early teen age, and to a certain extent beyond, is when you finally start being like, "Oh, okay." Now I take all these ingredients and I build a person out <laughs> of. Yeah, it's it's definitely a moment where your identity takes shape in a different way. Mm-hmm. And you see everybody else around you trying to build an identity too, right, and you're trying to take cues from other people of like what will fit best, yeah, what will work
1: and I guess maybe that maybe that is the time where the the lies that you believe about yourself that have been stewing start to really surface, yeah because you're trying to create an identity and figure out who you are but you have these things that you believe that must fall somewhere in there even if they're not true and so they start becoming part of who you are too were there any distinct moments for you
0: during that time where you uh, do you remember becoming aware of your body in a new way
1: no, I don't remember specific moments, but I I remember that comparison. Becoming got, amplified. Yeah, to a pretty extreme level, I think.
0: What were the differences you saw? Like, did you see your friends as being successful or cool or interesting in certain ways that you felt you weren't?
1: Yeah. I think all those things. But how so? Um, I mean, it's an interesting thing, right? Because it's not just when you compare yourself to other people, it's not always just, oh, they look better than I do. Yeah. But that I mean, that definitely was part of it. But there's also just that, oh, this person is so much smarter than I ever feel or that was a big thing for me was people being smart and me feeling like I was not smart and i
0: how how so is that like book smart street smart what what did that look like
1: a little bit of both i think my intelligence was a big insecurity for me and i don't think i would have been able to vocalize that when it was happening But I was afraid that I wasn't smart enough. I think I was afraid that I wasn't smart enough to be interesting. And not because I didn't feel smart as far as trying to get good grades and those types of things. But I just felt that I wasn't, I felt that people saw me as being a little dumb in kind of a ditzy, air-headed way
0: what kind of things were happening that made you feel like that's what you were perceived as
1: i think a lot to do with the way that people would respond to me a little bit condescendingly or i mean i don't recall anyone ever telling me that i was dumb but i think that there was different things i would take as that and i also just kind of accepted that That was who I was. And so I needed to have something else to kind of have an edge on being enough as a person. And so anytime I would compare myself to other people who I found to be better than me in any capacity, it was just kind of another nail in the (laughs) cop. Got it.
0: So, middle school was a time where you felt like you figured out being smart wasn't gonna be your thing.
1: Yeah. And kind of, uh, if I'm not smart, then what could be my identity? Mm. You know? Because you didn't
0: want it to be being dumb. (laughs) Although I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like in past conversations that we've had, not in this format, but you know, just Mm -hmm. in life as roommates and friends, you've told me that there was a period where. You felt like people expected you to be dumb. So you played that. You played into that a oh, bit. Oh, for sure. Like that made you more likable or something. Yeah. Was the way I understood it when you brought it up before. Yeah.
1: I think you understood that correctly. I think that was definitely. Like I said, that was a huge identity thing for me. And. I thought that if that's what people expected of me and they seemed to be fine with it. Not that it. They thought of you as dumb.
0: They still kept you around. That exactly. must be a part of why they keep you around. So you'll just keep that up.
1: Yeah. I think that is is because if people think I'm dumb and I'm kind of a little bit ditzy and people seem to think that's cute mm. in a condescending way, yeah. <laughs> but if they think I'm cute, then that must be a good thing. And so that's why I'm still here. Exactly. <sighs> wow. That was a revelation for me just now. Um, so I guess that's why I did that, but yeah. Okay. So let's stop talking about me and talk about you now.
0: (laughs) I mean, I definitely had, I, I know that eighth grade for me was the moment where I definitely quote unquote realized that I was overweight. I'm pretty sure if I in in reflecting that there were moments before that period where I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a little chubby or, nah, you know, I like eating more food than most people do. But eighth grade, I think was the first time that I was like, looked at myself. and was like, oh, I'm I'm fat. And um, I decided I wanted to do something about that. I lost 20 pounds in eighth grade. It was just through diet and exercise I I had been on a swim team for a couple of years at that point and I hated it so so much but my parents always wanted me to have an activity and just to separate the two they weren't like man she's fat she should be physically it was just like they wanted me doing something physical right. as you know all parents should want for their children I rode horses but at that time it it wasn't English and it wasn't competitive and for the most part it was trail riding so it wasn't super physically demanding but when I hit 13 I was finally old enough to get a gym membership and it's the same gym where we had swim team and my mom was a member of that gym so finally like I got to quit swim team because now I could go to the gym with her and I think when I kind of became aware I'm like oh I'm fat I don't want to be I started eating healthier and healthier for me just meant we went to soup plantation a lot and i loved their salad bar Mm -hmm. so i asked my mom to get me basically all the same ingredients i would put in that salad but instead of ranch dressing i'd do italian dressing and i this sounds extreme and in some regards maybe it is but also remember that i have pku so i can't have a lot of protein basically my diet went from that to only eating salads. Mm -hmm. So that's basically all I ate. And I was always a little obsessive with food because of the PKU. And I was definitely one of those kids that from elementary school on, you see kids getting lunches and you want to trade them for what looks better. And there was always a fixation for me. What do these people have that looks tasty and that I don't have, what can I trade them for? So on and so forth. And so, It was also a big habit in the group of girls that I ate lunch with, where if we didn't want something or we were kind of there were leftovers, we'd throw it in the middle and everybody could have it. So, like Mm -hmm. when it was brownies or candy or chips, I always was, I was kind of, (laughs) and I didn't really become aware of this fully until I started just eating the salads, that everybody kind of thought of me as the person, (laughs) the the cleanup crew for that stuff. Mm -hmm. I was always very fixated on it, very like, "Ah, I'll take it, you know? quick to grab the junk food in the middle or ask somebody if I could have a piece of it.
1: And at this time, I just want to clarify, at this time, you were also still taking the formula that you have to take. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: I, I've i taken that all my life and okay. I will always take that because that's the way I get
1: healthy right. protein. I just think that that's probably an important thing to to recognize too, in that like, you weren't just eating salads, you were also yes. getting nutrition yes. from that. Um,
0: yeah, I was getting that had a lot of sugar and, um, carbohydrates and protein in it.
1: Yeah. Cause like, I I feel like without that information, it's like, oh no, you had an eating disorder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: No, that's a hundred percent fair. I guess I, that's so a part of my lifestyle that I don't always think to bring it up, especially because most people don't know what that is, but you're right. That is important to mention. So yeah, it was a little extra work to prep prep a salad and bring it in a Tupperware and keep it cool and then add the dressing at lunch and all that stuff. But I started just eating salads and I went to the gym with my mom. I think it was almost every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when I started thinking about, I'd always had to read labels for protein and understand what that was. But that's when I started thinking about calories and I I, like I said, I lost 20 pounds. This almost is like this echoes where this will all go eventually, which makes it awkward to talk about because I don't think of that as a time where I was unhealthy. But I went from being like 144 pounds to 118 pounds over an extended period of time. But yeah, that's that's kind of when I first had this awareness that I was chubbier than most all my friends I would do neurotic little things in the hallway. Like we're all standing around talking, but if I hop on one foot or if I like pace back and forth, that'll burn some extra calories. (laughs) Oh, okay.
1: I'm so excited to talk about these things (laughs) because it's so, so neurotic. Okay. Now we know where this is going.
0: These (laughs) things sound more neurotic than they felt at that time. Mm -hmm. And also just to reiterate it, I didn't get an eating disorder till my early 20s. So this Mm -hmm. is when I'm 13. There's a big gap between this and then. Whereas like Mm -hmm. this happened to you in high school. I just want to differentiate that for people who are listening. I didn't start these habits in middle school and then get an eating disorder in high school. There's a huge gap of time where this all kind of brewed. Mm -hmm. That is when I got in the habit of weighing myself every day. Mm -hmm. But I was successful, you know, at losing the weight and I did it the way everybody talks about it, eating healthy and exercising. I remember getting a little, um, not addicted, but, um, to a certain extent addicted to that feeling of going to bed with a little bit of a hunger pain. Mm -hmm. I started associating that with, oh, I'm going to be a little less on the scale tomorrow, but I was eating three meals a day still. And Mm -hmm. it was just all these little things happened. You know, nobody made a big deal about my weight loss in any kind of negative way. Some of the habits I was forming probably were unhealthy, but not to the extent that they would raise a red red flag. For the most part, I was doing what everybody knows to be the healthy way of losing weight, exercising and eating better, and my fee levels the the level of phenylalanine that I would get in my bloodstream that I was supposed to keep under a certain level. I'd always been really bad at that because I was so fixated on food. I always had really high levels. And that period of time was probably the first time and one of the few times as a kid, even on into high school, that my fee levels were where they were supposed to be at. Mm -hmm. So all I was eating was vegetables. And so I also got a lot of praise, not necessarily for the weight, but from my doctors for getting my fee levels under control.
1: Mm Yeah. Yeah. I think what's really interesting that you pointed out is that some of these habits that you formed ended up spiraling many years later. <laughs> yeah. And it's just so interesting to me because even just those neurotic little tendencies of of checking your weight cuz that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. And then and then hopping on one foot instead of standing still, which it doesn't sound at all ridiculous to me, and yet I can see how it would sound ridiculous. But those little things that you start doing that seem so normal, they, but not a big deal, you know? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get a little more physical activity right now. And and those are the very things that Become, you just become obsessive about. Yeah, later. they kind
0: of reflect a fixation mm-hmm. and a hyper awareness. I think another maybe smaller thing, but still significant to me at the time, was I'd gone to private school since I started school. And when I was in first grade, the school went from casual dress to uniforms. And our uniforms were ugly and very uncomfortable. We didn't have, it wasn't like cute Catholic schoolgirl. kind of look that everybody thinks about it was like our school colors so it was was a lot of khaki and light blue and just awkward and we didn't have places to change so on P.E. days we all just wore P.E. uniforms the whole day Mm -hmm, interesting yeah (laughs) so uh, clothing and physical appearance was just not it, it was something we were all aware of and you had your own little style but after school well into middle school right I'd change into oversized Floppy cat t shirts and jeans. And I remember once one of the kids that I'd play with in our cul de sac, we'd all, all the kids would come out after and we'd play freeze tag and all this stuff. I remember him asking, What clique was I in in school, in middle school? Did I hang out with the cool kids or the nerds or this or that? And I was like, Well, I think our, and I had no clue why he was asking me that, but. I was like, well, I think our art clique is kind of of girls who not me, but like a lot of the girls I'm around could be with the cool girls. There's not a huge stratification between the girls that I hang out with and the cool girls. It's just that the girls I hang out with have different interests. Mm. And I remember him being really shocked by that and saying, oh, I would have guessed this because of how you dress. And I remember I remember being like, oh, well, we, we wear uniforms, so it's not like I wear this to school. But along with becoming aware that I was chubby, I became aware of how people were perceiving me a little bit more. Mm. And then I remember I started to get a little fixated on that. I started caring a little more about what I put on after school. And I never wore that dumb cat shirt in front of him again. But every once in a while, I'd put down what I was wearing in front of him to make it seem like, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm still not really trying. And then I'd get something reflected back from him And sometimes it would be like, oh, I actually really like those pants or something like that. And then when I graduated, I had lost weight. So it was kind of the, I was not chubby anymore. (laughs) I don't want to be too critical of what it was, whether it was normal or skinny or what. I don't even know if I have an accurate perception of what it was at that point. But when I went to high school, I was so excited to be able to wear (laughs) regular clothes. But then very shortly into it, I became overwhelmed by that, too. Mm -hmm. So I think I I became more aware of that stuff going into high school, too. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was kind of what I perceived as an average weight. But there was it, it was kind of no turning back, like innocence lost in that sense. Yeah. So I think that awareness of my size and my appearance and how my weight and how my clothing affected that. And how people perceived me was really, that door was blown wide open in middle school from a a couple different directions. And it just kind of slow burned.
1: That's what I'm, I'm so intrigued to hear you share, because we will be sharing more in depth of our personal stories. And I'm so intrigued to hear this because to know that backstory, which I knew some of that before, um, but to hear you, at what you were saying of kind of laying it all out at one time, um, because you and I have talked in bits and pieces often, but it's it, all of those things kind of just percolating over so many years. I'm very, I'm very intrigued to hear how that played out, um, because it sounds like A lot of the tendency towards unhealthy obsessive behavior started out very early on in very small ways and just held out until you, I assume, reached some sort of breaking point.
0: Yeah. And I think what's interesting too is the fact that those things were formed relatively early, but percolated over all these other instances. I think in high school, One of the biggest things that I struggled with and processed was just friendships. And it was really uh, figuring out that you had to have a little bit of a guard up. You had to draw lines because not everybody meant what they said the way you did. There was some disillusionment that happened there for me. Mm -hmm. So on and so forth. So friendship was that big thing. And then just kind of coming into... An awareness of how being a creative person was going to be a big part of my life, not just being creative, but pursuing a career that was creative. That was a big thing in college. Yeah. And like falling in love with film for real in college was both exciting and it kind of opened up the door for me to feel good about being a little weird with my style and interests and tastes. But I think even in the early stages of that, you think. And, you know, this applies to high school as well, but you think whatever you like represents you in a very distinct way. Mm -hmm. And so it's processing that and figuring it out and trying to find your place or find your in into that world. Mm -hmm. So I think finding your place and how you operate in friendships and then finding your place and how you operate in an industry or um, a creative space, those were kind of the things that I was... That were forefront of my mind while all these little physical habits, ways of looking at myself, dressing myself, expressing myself Mm thats a better way of putting it. That was a time where all these ways of expressing myself and seeing myself through that and seeing how other people took it were percolating. But the big things that I was dealing with was friendship and creative goals i guess
1: yeah yeah because there's so much more as we talked about last time there's there's so much more than just the external that causes us to reach a point where we either just i think one of the things that you used as a metaphor was like whether or not you're going to jump off the cliff willingly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. That was a lot of stuff that just all, all happened.
0: Yeah. It's happening right before our very eyes. That was so weird to talk about. I know I already said that, but that was weird to talk about.
1: Yeah. And why? Just because it was, uh,
0: yeah, I guess I, uh, I knew, but I hadn't, um, proven Mm -hmm. or included anybody else on the fact that so many of the things that I, uh, did early on fed into what happened later.
1: You know, I think that. What both of us are finding, and what is very true um in life is that we when we include other people in our stories I was going to use the word journey, but I hate that word <laughs> um, when we include other people in our stories and in our processing and in in our lives, it not only causes us to reflect deeper and process things but i think it also helps us to see more clearly and having having someone else beside us and this is not a new concept having someone else beside us really helps us walk through life and and i think that I just want to note that that's one of the bigger things, I think, in in body image, in relating to ourselves and, and trying to decipher through the lies that we believe as people, we often try to do it by ourselves. And go through all that alone because for many reasons because we find it embarrassing or we think that people won't want to walk through it with us or you know whatever 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 we tell ourselves but when we actually include other people to come along in our lives with us I feel that that's when we really start to understand truth over the lies that we believe Yeah. Yeah,
0: I agree. Well, next time we will be really digging into uh, that that uh, nose dive off a cliff the Brie took.
1: Oh yeah. Okay. So <laughs> you know what's funny is that I don't know how you feel about this, Kate, but. That was
0: really hard for you to say.
1: It was so hard. (laughs) But I'm nervous not in... I am not nervous to talk about details of, of what it's like to have an eating disorder. I am nervous about sharing exactly what we talked about earlier, some of the insanely neurotic things that I thought were normal. And and it's weird because there's something I think that both of us have already shared things that we don't normally talk about in life in this podcast. And yet there's just something about sharing sharing your some of your deepest crazy moments that's yeah. a little nerve-wracking. Yeah. But but we're gonna do it. And um and the the trains left the station. Yeah, and the point is that the point of all of this is that we didn't stay in that place, and neither does anyone else have to stay in that place.
0: A hundred percent.
1: Thanks for doing this, Kate Gray Johnson.
0: Thanks for doing this, Brie Kine.
1: Uh, I like I like processing with you, and so, I like reflecting. I, I do stuff. too.